That messaging may resonate with the CISO, but it will never resonate with the CISO's bosses. And that's the mistake I think a lot of vendors make, right? I can sell to you on the other side of the phone. I have a great technical solution. But if you can't articulate to your bosses why that benefits the business, you're going nowhere. So I always, I always talk about it like you got to sell through the person on the other end of the phone to their boss. Welcome back to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, a cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship and everything in between. I'm George K. with the vendor side. And I'm George A., Chief Information Security Officer. And today we have Jeff Wheatman in the hot seat, cyber risk evangelist at Black Kite. Welcome to the show. Jeff, let's start in the most obvious place, which is uh, the quick and dirty of how you got into this crazy industry. I basically, I stumbled into security. I was, uh, I was a network guy. I worked for a consulting company in New York that was getting acquired. So of course, nobody was doing any business. They wanted us, they wanted to keep me. So they threw me into this office where I was working like a day a week. So I found, so I'm dating myself a little bit. I, I stumbled across the happy hacker columns on uh, 2600 by Carolyn Minum. And I was like, this is way, way more interesting than any of the shit that I'm doing. So I started playing around that and I started doing pen testing and I realized that that was much more fun. And I thought that was the, the future. Um, I spent some time in consulting. I built a couple of consulting practices in the Northeast US. And then um, a buddy of mine was working over at Martha Stewart and he brought me over to run their network. Uh, well, te- he actually brought me over to run the end user because the network guy was getting fired. So I took over networking and I realized they had a lot of valuable assets and they weren't doing anything to protect them. So I changed my job. I changed my title. Unfortunately, I did not change my pay. Um, and I was there for a number of years. It was the, the interesting thing. And I think this is relevant for, for what we're talking about. I actually learned that my job was not given to me because I was smart. My job was given to me because people had problems they needed to solve. And I had this sort of customer switch uh, when I worked there. Uh, I also met my wife there, which was uh, was an interesting byproduct. But I was there during the whole legal, legal case and um, when uh, all that bad stuff was happening. Um, then I went back to another consulting company, had my own company for a little while. And then 17 years ago, I got a job working at Gartner, um, which was a great job because I got to tell people like George A what to do without actually having to do any of it, which made it really, really fun. Because then I got to say, no, 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 if it didn't work, you didn't do it the right way. Uh, and I was there for a long time, uh, 15 years. I loved that job. I ran the Gartner Security Conference for four years in uh, your area, George. Um, and then about 18 months ago, I kind of was getting burnt out there and I ran across, uh, black kite where I am now. And I talked to the CEO and I said, I like what you guys are doing. I think I could help you do it bigger, better, faster, more. He agreed. And 18 months later, here I am with you guys. Nice. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, you are, we're going to count you on the CISO side, even though you're also with the vendor. That works, um, because for me. Frankly, that works for me. Because frankly, if you're on the CISO side, I get to start. And I haven't had a chance to start recently. So I'm going to take that. George just got, he's just itching right. for it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start an obvious place for this podcast, which is from your 
experience, what is your personal preference for vendor engagement? Like, how do you like to be approached by vendors? So I'll start with saying what I don't like, because I think that sort of leads in. What I don't like is uh, people who reach out to me without looking to see what I do for a living. Um, Mm -hmm. If you didn't spend 30 seconds looking at my LinkedIn profile or my background, I'm not interested in having a conversation with you. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the cold outreach. Um, I'm definitely not a big fan of the, hey, here's a picture of a puppy. By the way, I can solve all your problems. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I appreciate honesty from the vendor side. And, and that's, that's really how I work what I do, right? I go, look, tell me what your problems are. And I will tell you whether I can help you solve them or not. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to blow smoke at you. I spent time on that side. Um, so I think the, the key thing really is spend some time understanding what my issues are, what my challenges are, what my job is. And then I'm willing to have a, a conversation. I'll entertain a conversation from anyone, even if I don't think you have a good solution now, because I know a lot of people. But if you approach me in an obnoxious way, uh, I'm not really all that interested. And um, I think that the key thing really is open communication. Uh, and I don't mm-hmm. think there's enough of that. I think there's too much of the vendors talking at you and not talking with you. And that, I think, is uh, a recipe for. Uh, not good interaction. Yeah. Can you, well, my follow-up was going to be what you hate, but since we started with that, I'm going to reverse <laughs> that. So is there an example and you don't have to name the vendor, but of like yeah. a type of engagement where you were like, Oh yeah, this is a standout example of where, you know, I felt like the time horizon was right. I wasn't being rushed or, you know, how, how that good experience went. Yeah. So I think a a lot of it starts out with questions, right? So if you call and say, hey, you know, we've spoken with people that do your job and here's a problem they're telling me they have. Is this something that you care about? And either Mm. yes or no. And in, you know, certain cases, I think, yeah, you know, actually that does sound like something that that resonates with me. And then then you have a dialogue and say, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing, what we have, what our challenges are. And I appreciated the fact that, and I'm actually thinking about a specific interaction where the the sales guy actually said, you know what, we can't actually solve 100% of that, but we can give you about 80%. Is that good? And I appreciated that honesty. I think the buy this and it will solve all your problems is never good. Um, and, And we ended up not buying from them at the time, but about six months later, I found that I had a little bit of a little bit of extra money and we actually went and I reached out to that guy and and we ended up buying their solution because of the the respect that he showed when I said, hey, we're not ready now. You know, he didn't push and and you know, I know it's it's a balancing act, right? Because salespeople have quotas they gotta hit. Mm-hmm. You gotta make the calls, you gotta make the sales. And um I respected that there was a, a balance there and I felt that he treated me as a person and not as a paycheck. And I think that's a key thing for, for vendors to really think about. That's like a theme of our entire show. (laughs) (laughs) I I know we've talked about it before. (laughs) So I have to ask then like to to shift gears a bit, like, you know, on the topic of security leadership itself, right. Um, you know, I found a lot of CISOs seem to think like the biggest threat risk to their entire operation are their own organizations themselves. And uh, while insider threat risk is definitely a real thing and very problematic, 
my question to you is how should CISOs fight through the, the salty hero complex that makes them think it's their job to save their own organizations from themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And I had a really interaction, a really good interaction about two weeks ago, a CISO who I won't name, but we're talking about a CISO for a $15 billion company who'd been a CISO for other really big companies. And he actually went on LinkedIn and said this, my job as CISO is to protect our organization's data. And I went, no, that is not your job. And I obviously, as a vendor, I can't really come out and tell him he's a schmuck when I was at Gartner, I would have. But um, I think that that I think the CISO's job, and George, you and I talked about this, the CISO's job is a communication. It's an ombudsman function. It's a, it's a communication. It's a translation function. And I think that's the, the key thing. I actually uh, had a recording earlier today uh, for my podcast. Uh, and it was uh, someone who was a CISO for a while and now she's in consulting. And that was about half of what we talked about was how do we get the business to understand that it's not our job as security people to protect you. Our job is to educate you and provide you with information so you can make better decisions and make defensible decisions and align with business goals and objectives and, and not be the person that protects you from yourself. Because no one's interested in in hearing that. Nobody wants to be talked down to. And I think and this may be controversial and it may get yelled at. I think too many CISOs talk down to their customers and say, no, 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 you don't understand. And oh, I'm going to educate yeah, no. you and teach you. And that no. does not. Jeff, you and I are very much on the same page. Like my approach is um, just going back because I started my career in consulting. Um, we're security advisors. We're senior executives who are security advisors, but we're still security advisors. At the end of the day, we give you the advice. If you choose not to take it, the fail-safe option that I've started doing is I make them sign a risk acceptance statement where mm -hmm. I've done my job. Yes. I've addressed the risk to you. If you still want to do it because the business wants it, you got to own it. It's funny as soon as you make them sign their name on it, 89% of the time, they don't want to do it anymore. Right. Yeah. So. There, one, one of my former colleagues uh, had a, a pitch he did one time at a conference. It was two guys on stage and and um, they kind of play acted that interaction and it ended up, well, actually, you know, one of them was Lee uh, and the other was, was Paul Proctor. And he said, oh, I just have to sign this paper. Bend over. I'll sign it. And he took out a piece of paper and a pen and he wrote it on Paul's back and stamped it and said, all right, I'm good. And then they went and played golf. And it was like, yeah, that is just not, not oh my God, how it works. The beauty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But so I, so I got a question for you, for you guys. How do we get to that accountability? I think there's a disconnect between responsible for decision-making and being held accountable for the decisions, right? Is that what you guys are seeing too? I mean, George, I don't know about you, man, but like when it comes to when it comes to response, this is actually a weird thing I've noticed in our industry. And it's it's not just at the executive level, though it's not as bad at the executive level generally. It seems like people in tech don't ever actually want to make the decision because they don't want their name assigned to be accountable for the results of said decision. I think that's actually a crisis in leadership across our entire industry that not a lot of people talk about because, you know, we're an industry full of neuroatypical neuro people. But when you go out to do this job and you're now in a point where you're making these decisions, if you don't have that kind of personal growth, maturity uh, and confidence to do so, 
it leaves a lot of organizations, I think, in arrested development because people just don't want to make the call and no one wants to be accountable. George, what have you seen? Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what comes with the C at the beginning, chief, and the O is an officer. Because I think there's a lot of aspirations like, oh, I'm in security. So my natural trajectory up the ladder is to become a CISO or maybe a CIO. But officer of a company is actually a very specific title. And it has a fiduciary responsibility to that company. And you you begin to take on all sorts of risk that you may not have thought came with that because you're an officer of the company. And so, yeah, I think that there is a crisis in the definition of that role. And I've seen it from both sides. I've seen maybe CISOs who don't feel empowered to articulate what their level of accountability and responsibility is, but I've also seen CISO roles very poorly defined, right? Like down to the point where the joke is that it stands for chief incident scapegoat officer, right? Like they're plugged up under several layers of other Cs, you know, it might be the CTO under the CIO or reverse that. And so like they have a C in their title, but they don't have the same level of accountability parallel across the organization. Yeah, that's true, dude. If you uh, if you asked me to like write a job description for what my job actually is, uh, I'd be like, cool. So do you want like a 12 chapter version or a 20 chapter? <laughs> I have like four or five different hats I put on any given week. And I think mm -hmm. I'm definitely common for the for the profession. Yeah. And, and George, you just you just said something interesting talking about the officer and the fiduciary responsibility, because as you guys know, uh, recent SEC ruling on on mm -hmm. cybersecurity reporting, I think there they they made a huge mistake, in my opinion, taking the board requirement out, because now what you end up with is people that have to make decisions, but they're not covered by DNO insurance. Yeah. So they're really in the firing line now. And they're, oh, you're the security person. You made that decision. And, you know, we saw it with the CISO for Uber and, mm -hmm. and we've seen some others. And that that scares me because you're you're putting responsibility for someone to make a decision about stuff they don't own. And the impact and the implications for that may be significant. We may see more and more people get, uh, you know, jail time and serious punitive damages. Um, we... I did a helicopter trip out in Vegas with a bunch of CISOs and I, I won't name the company, but this CISO told me he's covered by their DNO insurance because they had a big issue in the past for legal, right? So they're covering his legal charges, but they're not covering his fines. Mm. Well, that's the big problem. Forget about lawyers. Yeah. If you get fined, it could be millions of dollars and they, you know, CISOs make good money, but they don't make that kind of money. I am worried that in the search for accountability for cyber risk, we may have over-rotated on the stick versus the carrot. I, I also say that, Jeff, because we as an industry, I think we're suffering from this stigma of shame and we don't do as much information sharing as, say, threat actors do, right? They're always sharing like code repositories and like, here's a yep. new vulnerability I found. Uh, I mean, just look at the spirit at DEF CON versus like any breach activity, any vulnerability, any risk, which is trying to like lock it down because we're afraid of liability and we're afraid of exposure and it makes us look weak. And I don't think we get any safer because of that, right? We're 
I'll go one step further. And I've, I've made this comment um, at certain like public sector boards where I sit in and, and we're talking about trying to deal with threat actors and the evolving threat actor landscape. The problem when we're dealing with threat actors, especially, we are dealing with organizations and countries that don't have the same laws, boundaries, and parameters that we do, and right. typically in the West and Five Eyes states. Whereas if you look at an adversary state like Russia, they literally employ their threat actor groups. Like they treat right. the gangs like little mini consultancies and they have mm -hmm. military advisors placed with them. China does the same thing. Like literally every company there can be employed by the government at any time. You're, you're basically dealing with the matrix, right? It's, it's yeah. you know, the agents popping up everywhere. So how do we combat that, Jeff? Because that's, that's really what it comes down to is we're handcuffed by our own rule of law, but the rule of law is what makes us the quote unquote good guys. Yeah, I, I've always said uh, there are more bad guys than good guys. They have no ethical or moral boundaries, and we as defenders have to be perfect, right? The bad actors only need to find one uh, one hole in the armor. I think there are a couple of things there that you, in what you just said I think that's important. I think first, uh, if you don't think that the United States is hiring the same kinds of people and has the same kinds of people underneath, I think we're deluding ourselves. We may be more quiet about it. Uh, I feel like we're very much in a detente with a lot of those countries now. I feel like if they come in and they crash everything, we could just do it back to them. Mm. So I think that's that's important. But I do think the fact that they have more of a synergy, I think, is a problem for us. And I think it's actually better in Canada than it is in, in the U.S. Um, but one of the things that I really liked, and George, you and I talked about this, was that, um, you know, Jen Easterly from CISA was at DEF CON on stage doing shots. Uh, Kemba Walden from the, the White House was on stage doing shots, right? Those kinds of things we need that. And I, I said to Jen at one point, I said, you know, it seems like maybe the government has finally figured out it's actually more important to put likable people in than it is to put people that are brilliant. And not that they're not brilliant people, but they're likable and approachable. And I think that's going to help really move us in, in that direction. But George, A, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because you and I were talking about some, you, you had some concerns with some of the government involvement at, at DEFCON, right? And I think it's it's a fine line, right? Um, I, I do think we are fighting uh, we're fighting a losing battle, and and I don't think it's going to get any better. And I think with AI, I think it's actually going to get even harder still to defend. And um, you know, with all respect to the vendors, because I work for one, uh, I think we need to be careful about saying buy this tool and it will solve all your problems because that's dangerous Look, and misleading i'm i'm all for the government leaning into the relationship with the community and the commercial sector being like less rsae because that's kind of like what george and i kind of concluded to the bigger problem i don't look at ai as the actual threat like i've been saying this to other CISOs for a while every time i go to these like private dinners or whatever my fear mongering is that we are five to ten years away from quantum becoming consumable by the masses when that happens, everything that we know as security best practice is wiped out. The game is completely flipped on its head. We, I don't think, at the current state, and you're right, Jeff, we're, we're overall losing the battle. If we don't figure it out, if we don't align, if we don't get over our own biases and our own egos, which is what drives a lot of these like competitive issues, um, 
we're we're gonna get we're gonna get cleaned out. And I, I think the quantum or the quantum threat, I, I might sound crazy, I might sound like a John the Baptist type person screaming in the lake, but like really and truly, it's going to destroy us if we do not figure out a way to merge and protect our supply chains more efficiently. No. Well, I want to step one remove from doomsday. And but, but I want to I want to stay on the subject of oh, why? It's so security, fun. dudes. It's so, right? it's so much more fun, though. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna take one step closer to present, right? So, cyber yeah. news cycle being what it is, Jeff, I would be remiss if I did not bring up MGM, but I'm not gonna bring it up in the way that most vendors bring it up. I posted a very clear exhortation to the vendor community not to chase that ambulance, right? Like. Don't come out here and tell me like your edge security could have solved XYZ before we knew the threat vector, before this, that, and the other, right? So once more for our audience, as a security practitioner, I would like you to break down from that perspective, your take on that tactic, because, and we're going to get into this in the brass tax portion, vendors are constantly told from the marketing side of things, even the executive leadership, we need to create urgency like around our particular solution. And so the natural inclination is to latch on to whatever breach news. But I, I want you to speak like, what is it like to get that kind of just barrage of like, hey, Jeff, bet you don't want to be these people buy our stuff. I, I, I have been shaking my head since you started talking because I have composed multiple responses to people on LinkedIn that I don't post, which is like you, you know, it's it's like when in the political arena, when something happens and they immediately link it to their political agenda. And I think mm -hmm. that's, re I just think it doesn't work. I think, first of all, I think it's not true um, yep. to say, well, if you would have had my tool, this wouldn't have happened because that's a crock of shit, right? We know that it takes more than one tool. Um, yep. But here's the biggest challenge to me, George. I think that that messaging may resonate with the CISO, but it will never resonate with the CISO's bosses. And that's mm, the mistake point. I think a lot of vendors make, right? I can sell to you on the other side of the phone. I have a great technical solution. But if you can't articulate to your bosses why that benefits the business, you're going nowhere. So I always, mm -hmm. I always talk about it like you got to sell through the person on the other end of the phone to their boss. So I, and I don't think most salespeople are good at that. I don't think a lot of marketing programs are good at that. I think it's too much of I can solve your problem, but I can't tell you how to bring that to your boss. And that's, I think, where the big gap is, right? And, and I've seen your post and I loved it. And, and I think it's a really, really important story. But here's the thing. It's not guys like you who are, who are putting that up. It's the salespeople and the marketing people who've never done the job. They've never had a conversation with anyone who's done the job other than in a sales environment. Yeah, I just think if you know people, like just basic human empathy is going to be like, you know, it's not like they're going out of their way to get breached. No one wants to get breached. It's like the nightmare fuel in this industry. So like, why pile on? But I actually want to ask you, I want to go I want to peel back the veil for just a second. A lot of this news is circulating, right? And CISOs keep abreast of the news, you know, you got your feeds, whatever. How do you process breach like big breach news like how do you just sort of like take that in and just from the practitioner side how do you absorb that what do you do with that information yeah i gotta be honest with you 
I don't even pay that much attention to it anymore. I just think it's just another breach. I think I think what we need to do is we need to go at level deeper and go, okay, so yes, they got breached. Why? How? Right? Are they not doing basic blocking and tackling? Or and I, and I haven't read enough. I, I actually just got back from Dominican Republic, so to be fair, I was actually offline for a couple of days. But good for you. Know, you. How much do we know? Yes, we had a great time. How much do we know about actually what happened there? And mm. I think that the, to me, there's two kinds of of broad attacks. And the ones that are the interesting ones are not most of the ones that make the news. It's the ones where there's actually a novel attack and a novel approach, as opposed to, hey, they just sent an email and somebody who didn't wasn't patched opened it, right? So yeah. I think that when you peel it back, I think that's the key thing is, is this a novel attack or is it just a case of a bunch of people or one person not doing what they're what they're supposed yeah, to do? I find, I find the media sensationalizes more either if it's a big brand name a large amount of number, like a money number that's assigned to the loss, or if it's a large amount of customers, right? Those are the things that the non-technical mainstream media consumers can identify with. I'm with Jeff on this one where I'm more like, okay, well, was it an interesting like TTP? Like was the attack done in a way that is unique? Mm -hmm. Is there a new technology being utilized? Is there something that we can actually learn from this? Because if you talk to me about the thing that's been in the news this week, like the MGM hit, and some of the information that's come out today, and today is recording day, we're what, it's uh, September 14th. This will probably change by the time it comes out. It was basically a social engineering attack that compromised the individual that was targeted on LinkedIn, and then the compromise occurred via help desk, right? So, like, these are, it's a problem. Like, you should be, if you're following best practice and building your, your process to standard, it should have been mitigated. Running an organization like that, God knows how busy they are every single day. But I don't see this as anything particularly innovative. Now, if we found out that they had used an entire AI engine to dupe the people on the other line, that's that's something that like the doomsday thing that George K keeps pushing now for a few months. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I look for what the innovative uh, approach is. And if there's no innovative approach and it's just a big, huge hit, one security professional to another man. I just feel sorry for the guys trying to like, you know, watch that ship. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree hundred percent. And, and to your point, I'm not sure how interesting this one was. I think the scale there, there's a guy, uh, his name is Peter Sandman. Uh, he calls himself a risk communication consultant. He's really well known in business continuity and resilience. And, um, he says uh, likelihood times impact equals risk, yeah, blah, blah, blah. He said risk equals hazard plus outrage. And I love that approach because he's talking about, yes, there's bad stuff, but does it end up on the front page of the paper? Is it a media frenzy? And, and you know, that's why I like uh, Brian Krebs as an example because he's a really smart guy. He's in there. He's got his sources, but he, it's never sensationalistic with him. And that's why I love his stuff. Nice. Yeah. So again, then, so let's kind of shift gears then if we're talking about risk mitigation, because that's obviously an important thing that drives our you know ROI, given how important, like, for example, business architecture is uh, in order to demonstrate ROI to a board for security investment. What do you find is the best strategy for dealing with CEOs or owners who like to talk a big game about security, don't seem to actually want to invest in it for their own organizations? <laughs> So 
I have a, a straightforward answer. It's not really simple and it takes a little bit of effort. And I think sometimes we don't have the luxury, but I think you have to start with go go to your your annual company's annual reports, go to your company's about us page, see if you can find a mission and a vision and then work backwards from there and say, okay, well, in order to achieve this, what business processes need to be implemented? And then, okay, each of those business processes have technology under them as enablers. What are we looking at there? And then you can start to have conversations and say, well, we do this thing called patch management. You don't actually have to know what patch management is, but we can tell you if we do a shitty job of it, it's more likely you're not going to be able to increase sales by 10%, right? Or if you, you know, we do this uh, identity access management, if we do a bad job of that, we're going to have 10% more fraud. And I think when you start having those kinds of conversations and, and it can stop short of doing a full cyber risk quantification, because that's, that's probably a different uh, Mm. topic for a different recording. But I think you need to clearly articulate, we do these things. If we do them well, this is how the business benefits. And I think the key thing too, is we need to stop saying, if we don't do this, bad stuff happens. Sometimes if we do these things, good things happen. And we need to balance that, right? If we do a good job of managing third-party risk, we'll be able to onboard vendors more quickly, right? If we do a good job of putting out standard systems, we'll have more uptime. And I think those are the things that resonate with with business stakeholders. And, And one of my former colleagues at Gartner had a great example. He said, look, you're running a hospital. Yes, you have doctors, you have healthcare. But if you don't get your bills out, you don't get paid, you don't have money to pay the doctors or buy new equipment. But no one starts there. And yeah. I think that's where, I think that's the mistake that, that we make is we, we focus too much on the technical side and not on the business side. And the only way to effectively do that is to work backwards. And I don't think that is in the, it's just not in the DNA of a lot of, of technical people. And we need to fix that. I don't have a great answer. I've been trying for 15 years. And I'm still saying the same stuff over and over again. And uh, it's changing, but real slow. Well, let's let's shift gears on that then. Is tooling always the problem? Like at what point do you decide that you need to get another tool instead of going the route of either further developing your staff in the process of solving things or just plain trying to get more headcount? Because that's always the argument, right? It's either tools mm-hmm. or headcount. Well, what about process though? To me, process drives everything, right? If you don't have scalable, repeatable patterns of behavior, which is how I define process, it doesn't matter what tools you have because they won't be implemented consistently. It doesn't matter what your people do because they won't be in the right place at the right time. I mean, 10 10 years ago, the FBI in the US got breached. Well, if you don't think they have every tool on the planet, you would be wrong. And it turned out it was a process problem. They weren't doing certain things in a consistent way. So you're spot on. And- when I, when I was in my last job, tools were never the answer I led with. I always led with people and process. Do we need tools? Sure. But we need to know what the tools are doing. And I think sometimes we buy them because they, oh, hey, look at the cool blue lights or wow, that's a nice dashboard. Or hey, they put us on their private jet and flew us off to the Super Bowl. And yeah, but if you don't, you're right. If you don't have the process to ingest and take on that new tool, <laughs> what happens is you've got duplicative you know, you got like three EDRs and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Casby yeah. here. And so, you know, and, and like, it's not even being used or there's like tech debt building up because it just hasn't been like assimilated. That's the word I want. I was looking for. 
All right. Well, we're taking a quick break and we're back with brass tacks in a moment. We are back and it's brass tax time and turning it over to you, George A. Awesome. So we're going to turn to you, Jeff, to give us some advice for our listeners, folks who, uh, you know, whether on the sales side or practitioner side, we'd love to pick your brain for your wisdom. Right. Uh, the first thing I'd have to such, ask you, such as it is, <laughs> such as it is, how do you uh, keep up with industry trends? Right. Because there's a lot of like, like bullshit out there. There's a lot of headlines, a lot of sensationalism. And then there's like actual good sourcing to get your information. What would you recommend to keep up with the trends every day? So I think there are a couple of, of things. Number one, I think is podcasts like, like bare knuckles and brass tacks and, and uh, you know, my risk and reels, I think they're, they're a great source, I think for, for sort of practical guidance. And you can hear from practitioners um, who don't necessarily get on the news. Right. Um, I think there are a lot of um, sort of news aggregators out there. Of course, none of them are coming to mind from a name perspective. But if you go out there and you look, there are a lot of aggregators out there and they can send you, you know, a daily, weekly, um, daily, weekly thing. Um, I'm a big fan of networking. I probably spend 75% of my time talking to people like you guys in formal environments like this or, or not formal. Um but I also think that we easily can suffer from information overload. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you also got to take some time off and you have to, you know, have things that you are uh, passionate about. And, um, you know, there, there was an interesting conversation. Uh, I'm a, a involved with a group called Cyversity in, in the mentoring program. And somebody was talking about being passionate about something versus having something be your passion. And I think there's a fine line there. So yes. I think you have to be able to separate those those two out. Um, and then I think I'm a big fan of when you hear something, the ne the question you should always ask is, so what, right? Yeah. Or so what does that actually mean? Do we need to care about this? And I don't think enough of that happens. I think there's too much of... Um, the, the knee-jerk reaction, the quick reaction. And I think sometimes we are better served, you know, to your point, George K about MGM. We don't really know what happened yet. And yet everybody has their solution. Well, maybe mm -hmm. we need to wait. So I think having having some patience and and um I think it enables us to parse. And then I'm a big fan of meditation. At the end of the day, I always sit down, and I stare at the wall for 10 or 15 minutes, and it doesn't have to be ohm and the whole thing. But I feel for me, that's the way I can digest all the information. We're just we're just overloaded all the time. And I think we need to be able to parse that internally and figure out what's relevant. Yeah. Signal over noise, uh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. And so, there's a lot um, of noise out there. Yeah. A lot of noisemakers coming for you. Um, <laughs> for in the earlier part of the show, you talked about how, you know, this seller engaged with you. There wasn't a lot of rush. You didn't buy at the moment, but you came back around. And we've heard that repeatedly. So, you know, I take from that tactically what that means is sort of on the sales side, constant engagement, of ex set the expectation of a longer time horizon. And you just sort of have this, you know, irons in the fire at all times. But what would you say about that experience, that level of, you know, either checking in genuine interest, like 
you know, now you're on the vendor side. What would you say if you were the sales leader about like, guys, you do expecting somebody to like buy in the first three months that you contact them is, you know, you know, for a seven figure deal is an unreasonable expectation. Absolutely. So I'm a big fan of sort of like the four for one rule. If I should give you four things before I ask you for one. And mm, I don't I think that. there is enough of that, right? So like at Black Height, our, our whole marketing is built around, we're going to provide value for you. And then you will come to us when you need our assistance. So it's not about, hey, buy this and it'll solve all your problems. It's, hey, we've heard that this is a problem. Here are some best, pra- I hate to term best practice, but here, here are some things we see people do that are, are successful, right? Here's, and, and I'm also a big fan of, it's okay to talk about a problem, even if you don't have a solution, because then at least everyone else knows they have the same problems. I think too many people, too many of us think, wow, this is a problem. I'm the only idiot that can't solve it. So I think that, that that's really important is the, the giving. Like when I connect people on LinkedIn, the first thing I do when they connect to me is, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Is there anything I can help? Any problems you have that I can help you solve? And I, that's, that's my whole thing. And if you look at me on LinkedIn and, and you know, check, very rarely do I talk about anything we do. I talk about problems and I try to help people solve them. And I think that that three for one, four for one, I think is the right ratio. And, and to your point, George, I think too many sales and marketing people, may, maybe they give you one for one, but I think a lot more of them are one for three, right? So they're asking for three things before they give you anything. Right. Yeah. And I, I yeah. don't think people are interested in buying. Then then you end up buying because you have to, not because you want to. And there's no stickiness there. Yes. Yeah. So I mean that that's kind of that is very much correct. And I know that like your know, big motivator for us starting the show was the sheer stress of just like how many vendors I had to deal with that was just impacting me. It was like literally like I was taking up way too much time in my day. Along that thought and a lot of other things we kind of talked about it you were talking about like your meditative process there there are times at the end of the day where my meditative process is can i curl into a ball and cry for like 10 minutes because it's, it's just okay I, I i you do that george i will come and rub your back i promise yeah. <laughs> uh, much appreciated so my kind of idea here is, is if you can give us um just some of your tips on you know in the heat of this job and it's it's an insane job how do you stay sane, generally speaking? Because you're also like not only just doing the job and doing it well, but you're like you're out there. You're putting so much energy in and you're putting your whole like personality out there, which, you know, separately, that's a whole other level of stress. How do you do it, man? How do you keep sane? So that's a great question. And and this may sound like a little bit of a, of a silly answer, but I stay sane by being grateful. Right. I. You know, I just got back from vacation. We went away with a couple. I have known the wife since high school. And I sat her down. I said, you know what, Teddy? I'm so happy that you're in my life. My life is better because you're in it, right? And I think we need to have more gratitude. And I don't think enough of us do. I think we're constantly battling. About four months ago, I realized the most common thing out of my mouth was that is so fucking annoying. Like that was all I was saying. And I caught myself one day and I was like, that's not helpful. That's not getting us anywhere. So I, I feel, George, I think to the, the short answer to your question, I think we have to be grateful for what we have, right? We're grateful for 
like I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for, you know, my job. Most of the time I really love my job. I'm grateful that you guys are now in my life, right? I, you know, we got introduced through, through our mutual friend, Dave Motti. Um, I'm grateful uh, that we can do some good. And I think that that gratitude, I think, keeps us grounded and puts us in a position where we can then fight the good fight. I think if there's no gratitude, I think it's just it's just a grind. And and I don't think it can be that. I, I talk to people all the time. They never take vacation. I a former boss of mine, so I, when I was in my last job, I had a lot of vacations there a long time. My boss said, you ever take two weeks in a row? And I said, no. He said, you're an idiot. He said, do you take all your vacation? I said, no. He said, you're an idiot. <laughs> said, you're entitled to that. Take your time. Whatever is there will be there when you get back. And, and I think that we need to take time for ourselves. If we're, not, if we're not good to ourselves, we can't be good to anyone else. Yeah. George A., you said hero complex. There's also martyr complex, right? Oh, like, yeah. you know, we're, yeah. we're, the, they're, we're the ones in the line of fire. If we don't stay here in the hot seat through it all, you know what will happen. Well, so so Ginger, you mentioned hero, and I'll I'll just share one last thing. So there there's a very famous archetype uh, for storytelling out there called the hero's journey, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's it was created by uh, Joseph Campbell, and he did an analysis of of a lot of historical literature. And I always tell CISOs, all, well, I ask them, I go, who's the hero in your story? And they go, me. I go, no, you're not the hero. <laughs> you know who the hero of your story is? The CEO is the hero, the CFO, the COO. Mm-hmm. You are the wise person who gives them the magic weapon, gives them the magic sword. In our case, gives them information so they can make better decisions. And when I started talking to people about that, that was a little bit paradigm shifting because then you don't feel like it's all on you right? The hero has so much responsibility. So let's not be the hero. I was just saying, Yoda dies. <laughs> You're talking about Yoda. Yoda dies. <laughs> Does he? And he becomes, becomes one with the force. Yeah. We, all, we all go sometime, but we should go happy. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you. Um, all right, Jeff, I want to end on a super tactical note because I, I really liked what you said here about selling through, not selling to. Um, there's a lot of debate, you know, is the CISO always the ICP for companies? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, you know, the way the p- power is delegated, it, you actually Wait, don't I, sell. ICP, in, in, insane clown posse? Yeah, that's the second time someone's made that joke to me <laughs> this week. Um, but yes, ideal customer profile for our practitioners. Um, but I guess I, I want to tie that to what you'd said earlier about like giving, right? This uh, this ratio. So what would be your advice if you were advising other vendors? Like how do you tell these teams like, okay, the the person you're actually selling to might be the CFO, you know, not the, not the CISO. So yeah. What tips do you have there for kind of thinking through that problem? Yeah. I, I, I always tell our salespeople, go, go to your prospects website, go look at their 10 Ks, go look at mm. their annual reports. Um, most organizations, if you do a search for the company name, mission and vision, you'll find some stuff there. And I always say, start there. Just to give you an example, I used to coach CISOs going in front of boards all the time, hundreds and hundreds of them. And 99.9% of the time, there was no business goal in that deck. And I would always say, 
you need to have your business goals, but the board already knows, right? But they don't know you know. So mm. you have to show them. I know what's important to you, and that provides the context. And I think that context is just so critical uh, from that selling through, right? You need to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Um, and, and you know, again, why why should I care? Why should, why should that person care? Why should they give you the time to you know, meet you at the water cooler or, or, you know, meet you after hours for a, for a scotch or a beer or a coffee. Yeah, that's good advice. You know, and I would say I, I'm trying to anticipate the counter argument. The counter argument is like, who has time to do that? Right. I've got 200 target accounts, this, that, and the other, I would say, you know, now is the time more than ever where you could actually use all of these fancy AI tools to do that. You can use Claude or GPT to question, to basically interrogate a 10K filing. Like you don't want to read through all of that. That's fine. But you could like get at the meat of it and start making notes on the core risks and business propositions of your prospects, because it's definitely going to pay off. I mean, that's the investment at the front end. That's going to pay off because you said, sorry, we talked about that, George, like, in our in our industry, the future means that folks have to have the ability to use those AI tools. If you're not mm-hmm. teaching yourself, if you're not investing in learning how to optimize the AI tooling options that are coming out every day, I think there's not going to be a place for you in this industry very soon. Yeah, because the the it's either use technology to get really good at understanding quickly. Or the alternative is Zoom Info, where you, Jeff, are a title and a line item and a database, and I'm just going to hit send to 3,000 people at the same time with the same message and cross my fingers and hope there's a 2% open rate. <laughs> you know? But here, here's the thing, George, and I think this is, this is important. Yes, it does take work. I'm not going to lie. But if you do that work for 200 prospects and close... 10% of them versus doing no work for 2000 and closing 0% of them or 0.5, there's more money in the former than there is. And the other thing too, and this is something I tell people all the time, if you're focusing on a vertical, you do that legwork once, I can tell you most manufacturing companies have mm-hmm. similar goals, right? Yeah. Most education, similar goals, vendors, similar goals, most you know, online websites. Yes. Yeah. But they're not exactly the same. And I'm a big fan of, so we hear this from people who do your job in companies like yours. Does this resonate with you? Right. Mm -hmm. And one last thing I'll say, salespeople need to stop saying, does this make sense? Because that is incredibly rude and insulting. And I do it all the time and I catch myself, right? Does this resonate? Does this help you make better decisions? Does this make you feel more informed? When you say, do you, does that make sense to you? You're talking down, we're mansplaining and we know that's, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jeff, this has been incredible. I think there's a wealth of insight here. So thank you very much for lending us your time. It is my pleasure. Appreciate you, Jeff.
bad. It pops out. Yeah, we've we've had uh we've had CISOs on who have maintained their status as clean, even though George and I don't, and uh, it seems to go over fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not I'm not too concerned. And you know what? If I drop an f bomb, it happens. It happens. All right, here we go. 